I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. It's my honor and pleasure to introduce our guest, Matthew Zilstra. Matt serves as the founding co-director for the Organization for Noetic Ecology, located in South Africa. He's deeply involved with reimagining and rewilding the human-nature relationship. He holds a PhD in conservation ecology and in transformative sustainability through Stellenbosch University in South Africa. He has over 15 years of international experience in research, education, and facilitation of social ecological change processes. He speaks widely and has co-founded many conservation-oriented organizations. Matt has a long-standing curiosity with our evolving understandings of consciousness and how intention and attention can shape our experiences in nature. For more information, you can go to noeticecology.org. Welcome, Matt. So, so it's a really interesting thing to me that I met you some three or four years ago for about 10 minutes at a conference and you're in South Africa and I'm here. And with all the incredible busyness of all of us, somehow we stayed in contact and it fascinates me why. What is it that um, made us study? reach one another and not forget one another. Every time we speak, it's really interesting because it's like we are, um, are in the same river of consciousness, the same current in the river of consciousness. But if you have any thoughts about that, it'd be interesting. Well, firstly, thanks very much for the chance to, to speak with you today. And, um, and to share our um, our conversations and and passions more publicly, I um, it's a really good question, and but I, yet I have a sense it's not unique at this point in time, and I think increasingly as we are facing what we're facing in the world, the importance of finding people who really share the same vision and. Uh, walking the same path is one of the most important things to to keep us, um, well, maybe first and foremost sane, <laughs> but to keep us uh, directed and focused on what we're trying to do and the little role we're trying to play in precipitating some kind of change. And so um, a big part of the continued contact for me is just that sense of, Knowing that there are other people out there who who are um, who share a similar vision, and it's these little these little um, connected communities that are springing up across the planet. And I, whilst I haven't read the the book, but I understand Paul Hawkins' Blessed Unrest sort of talks about that as well. This idea 
that below the what's visible below or what we're getting bombarded in the media mainstream, there are these small connected communities, whether formalized through organizations or just informal groups that are really doing their little bit to weave a new fabric into this unfolding, this great unfolding, which we don't really know what's, uh, what it's going to look like. Um, and that's, that's one aspect. And the other aspect perhaps is a little bit more um, uh, edgy or noetic, but, but I do feel that we, you know, we resonate sort of energetically um, with, with, with people and sort of that brings certain people and events and, and what have you and, and animals uh, into our life uh, at certain times. And um, we have some sort of attraction to that and there'll be the, there'll be the old saying of a reason, a season or a lifetime. I think that we, that we just feel connected with people for whatever reason, whatever point um, in our journey. Um, you use the word noetic. Uh, would you like to explain that and also explain the organization you founded, the organization of noetic ecology? Sure. Well, um, those who are familiar with the Institute of Noetic Sciences probably wouldn't need an introduction. Um, they're based in uh, Petaluma in California. But uh, I've been very much inspired by their work. But particularly, I was been interested in, in the application of the noetic sciences to ecology and conservation. So noetic is generally understood to be, in its simplest terms, um, inner knowing. But it's, it can have an expanded understanding is that it's a sort of knowing that comes through direct embodied experience. And that for me, as far as it applied to ecology, was incredibly important because in the PhD research that I've done on nature connectedness and meaningful nature experience, the importance of direct embodied experiences is just absolutely critical in defining our sense of connection, our sense of belonging in the world, and most importantly, our sense of taking responsibility for what we would call pro-environmental behaviour. So we, um, after finishing my PhD and, and working in field study programs for undergrads, just the importance of, um, um, of direct embodied experience just, just, you know, absolutely amplified itself. So... But then in parallel, I've been fascinated with these new understandings of consciousness and what that means. Um, you know, the scientific evidence is moving fast that perhaps consciousness is, is primary in the world. Um, philosophers of consciousness are looking at ideas of panpsychism that you know, perhaps consciousness is the foundation for everything. So um, I've been really excited and, and passionate about looking at, well, how do we bring these understandings into what has traditionally been called conservation? but which has been coming a little bit circular and, and perhaps stale for some people. So it brings up the um, interesting question of the importance of um, inner work in order to make change, That the common idea that each of us has to become connected with ourselves and do our own healing before we can help heal the planet versus the idea of, wait a minute, wait a minute, everything's burning. There's no time for that. We have to take action. What's the balance between those two? Yet that eternal question. Um, if with inner work, we approach, ideally we approach things with caring and compassion 
and a deep thoughtfulness, but it takes time. With outer work that's not grounded, we become aggressive and shrill and off to get a backlash, and yet there's some action done. Um, what do we do? <laughs> What's the right approach? Is there, some, is there something new coming out, ideally, a new type of consciousness where we somehow combine the two? And if so, how do we make it happen faster? Answer all that, Matt, and fix it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what do we do? I mean, I would be pretending to say that I had the answers, but it's the question that I've really been holding very closely and continuously uh, for a while, but especially the last six months, because in my own social and professional circles, that question has been coming up time and time again. And it's incredible that even between people who are otherwise on the same page with so many things, it can actually cause quite a bit of discord between them. Because I think that's because there is no one size fits all. We are all on our own journey. And in that ebb and flow, seasonal, cyclical process that is life, there is going to be the times when we need to go inward and do the inner work. And then there'll be the times when it seems that life is calling us into action and we have to do the outer work. I have been inspired by various people on you know, um, thinking like this. And one of them is, of course, Joanna Macy and her idea of active hope in terms of the importance of having um, a very important grounding within the inner work, and hers was in the Buddhist tradition. But you know, one of the things that the Institute of Noetic Sciences has looked at with transforming consciousness and living deeply is just the importance of having a practice, finding a practice and being committed to a practice, some sort of inner practice. And I, so I think that is essential, um, particularly through these times and you know, whether it's meditation, mindfulness, some sort of um, body work that, that allows the calming and stilling of our life force, uh, I, that, that does seem to be the essential inner work. But there are equally powerful arguments to embody or, or to pursue the sort of soul work that the likes of uh, Bill Plotkin uh, with the Adamus Valley Institute has, has pioneered over many years, you know, looking at our own sort of soul and mythopoetic journey. Um, and it can get quite bewildering, really, to see, you know, um, to see all those things out there. But, but it is, I think, a matter of really tapping into saying what calls us and what really gives us the power and, and awakens the gifts that we can bring to the world. There is no doubt in my mind that the outer work has to happen. And I think where the frustration happens, at least what I've seen between colleagues, is when the inner work flag gets waved as a kind of a uh, kind of a cop-out or at least what appears or is judged judged by others as being a cop-out and it's that which i think is challenging because some writers have said we've got a kind of you know um extinction paralysis i, I don't know if um, anyone's coined that term but at least that's what it feels like to me you know that we're facing a situation we haven't been trained for it we've never had prior education and and what do we do um you know it definitely seems like something is being called from us uh, from those of us who are aware and um and and are paying attention <laughs> to you know to what's going on in the world that we, that we need to do something and yet in the same sense of needing to do something and feeling to do something there's also this this you know this contradiction of of do nothing um in a sort of more inner work sense 
And uh, I think some of the, you know, great spiritual teachers talk about holding the contradiction, being comfortable with the contradiction in life. And, uh, and that's, I think what the inner and outer work is. It's both at the same time. It's a dance, but it's also this contradiction. Um, And I am still playing with that myself. You know, I felt this beginning of this year, I needed to go inward uh, a bit more after running around outward a lot. And, um, but I'm hoping that will recharge, refocus, realign, and that I can burst out a bit more outwardly uh, later this year. I'm not sure if that answers the question at all. <laughs> I, don't, it's, I don't think we have an answer. I think we as a, a human species um, need to go into the answer. Each of us can talk about it and explore it. I don't think we have the answer. Um, yeah. But we're exploring at least. Again, the issue is do we explore in time? That's, I think, is what is, you know, what is challenging is that you have this, you know, the rational around us saying it's urgency. And, I mean, this is where maybe coming from the conservation side of things haven't perhaps helped. Uh, like uh, being in a crisis state is, you know, means you're on adrenaline the whole time. Um, I mean, that's what crises do. Mm. And so you're constantly charged up like that um, if if we are in, embracing the crises and that is not healthy um, and it's not to say there's not a crisis or there's not an urgency but it's to understand that constantly playing that language um, does mean that you know physiologically we are we're responding to that and that is where the role of connection is so critical and fostering connection at the same time because as far as our neurophysiology goes, um, activities which bring on connection will also help activate the uh, other side of our nervous system, which can counter this constant adrenaline and dopamine that we're on. It, it, it awakes the, you know, um, the oxytocin and, um, and uh, if I understand correctly, the vagus nerve and what have you, which, which really can, can give us an important balance to live more healthier lives. It doesn't even work, though, because if we are too in a crisis mode, we don't think clearly. And we don't come up with the deep, true answers that when I say true, I mean answers that are actually going to work long term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, if you need to rescue somebody from a fire, um, you can, in that particular moment, you could potentially, you know, call on incredible instinctual resources to do something fantastic. But it's, but it's a moment. And when it's a prolonged sense of, of being on, on alert, on crisis, on adrenaline, then just as you say, it doesn't work. And unfortunately, it can be, I mean, and, and there's plenty of research to back this up. This is not just my own opinion here. But the, um, the doom and gloom message, the, the, the sense of look what we're losing, um, does tend to turn people off and it's a shame and, and I um, I bemoan it myself and it's not that I like it's a pity I mean it's like what and what uh, what will it take for people to take these sorts of messages seriously but if it's not working then we have to say well what will and um, it is direct experience uh, I feel it comes down to that um, and direct experience which brings on connection that can also work both ways I mean some people are saying after the Australian bushfire crisis that things will change now because sadly as as far as it seems to go for humans it does take a disaster and i really hope we don't have to go that far but um if they can be the kind of disasters that that give us sufficient warning 
then perhaps, sadly, that's what we need. There's some interesting um, ideas from the people who call it radical or from the far left. Um, there's a question in an article that was written with, um, under deep green resistance. And the question is, where is my loyalty? So when people ask, how can we stop climate change? What they're really asking is, how can we stop climate change without substantially changing how we live on the planet? That's like asking how we can save the salmon and the orcas without removing dams, stopping industrial logging, stopping industrial agriculture, industrial fishing, um, industrial plastics. Um, the answer is we can't. The right question isn't how can we stop climate change, it's where is my loyalty? And if I answer, yeah. Yeah, where is my loyalty? Is anything other than with nature? We can't expect life on this planet to go on it much longer. So um, that's that's where I like to work, and you too, in those those kind of deep questions, to deep understanding of um, what we value. And if we don't go to that level, nothing will matter. Changing plastics won't matter. Recycling won't matter. Um, replanting trees here and there won't matter. Nothing will matter if we don't make a fundamental underlying shift. And that's where you and I are in common. Um, that's where we work. That's the understanding we have. Not that it's not important to take certain actions um, to try to stop plastics, etc. All that's important, but it will make no difference at all in the end if we don't have an underlying shift. At the same time that we're trying to collect all the plastics, I think it's Exxon if I'm saying it right, um, is building a massive new plant somewhere in Pennsylvania to make plastics because they see if we can't have oil for transportation anymore, plastics are really cheap and they can make a huge fortune on it. How are we allowing that is a fundamental question. How do we who care about life and the planet allowing that? What does it take for a human being to do that? One of my friends once talked to a CEO, I don't know whether it was whether with um, Roundup or cigarettes or whatever it is, saying, how can you do that to other people? And he looked at the person and said, you really believe we care? You guys are the fools. You guys are fools for caring. So I'm giving you a whole bunch of stuff here, but what's, what's our true human nature? Is there a true human nature? Are there two human natures, a group of people who care and a group of people who don't care? There's some research suggesting that authoritarianism itself has actually got some small genetic component in terms of um, more rigid thinking and more fear-based. This goes back to this endless discussion. If humans are basically good, you act one way. If there's some humans that aren't so good, how do the rest of us stop them? How do we take the reins? The power of the corporations is so huge. There's another article on that same thing about called the plastic bag distraction. And it says the, the banning of single-use plastic bags is the latest in a never-ending parade of distractions meant to dull us into thinking that modern civilization is becoming more environmentally friendly and that the elite corporations and their servants are capable of doing the right thing. And it's meant to distract us from considering what really needs to be done to deal with the climate crisis. A failure to recognize this latest plastic bag distraction as a distraction, and here the wolves are starting to howl in agreement, is a result of having lost the ability to even identify what's important, what's real, 
what should be a priority and what is not. Part of the reason we've lost the ability to distinguish real from not important is that our entire lives have been reduced to nothing but an endless string of distractions. And apparently the wolves and the coyotes agree fervently. I don't know if you can hear them. I can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they, um, they're offering the howl of approval. Huh. Yeah. I mean, they are some, they are definitely the big, uh, the big questions. Um, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit on what you were saying about, um, that these incremental actions make no difference. And, um, certainly in the material realm, that's true. And it's really, it'd be quite difficult to argue otherwise. That would be debilitating really, because then there is, there is no hope. And if I live my life with a complete adherence or subscribing totally to a purely materialist worldview, um, there is very little hope. But what inspires and keeps me going is something through my own I guess you would call noetic experiences and those that I have heard from others and those which came through my PhD research and those which really, as, we, as we're seeing, you know, um, science is now, is now um, finding that there's more to the materialist worldview. And I'm sure many of our listeners you know, have their own personal experiences that would feel that. But th there's something that we don't know. And um, there is something... Um, that is inspiring being born and being a, um, a, a potential agent of change at this point in time to have the possibility of, of, of being a part of this critical moment of humanity. And there is something that just feeds the curiosity the, um, of, of what I always think of as the great mystery um, of the unknowable, but also in being comfortable with not knowing. And so with our current knowledge, yes, incremental changes like all of those you listed make no difference. And it does require a fundamental turning um, to really uh, fundamentally, like I said, where is our loyalty to, to, to turn our attention toward non-human nature in every moment and to, to, to really embrace that. And it's a matter of making choices and moment by moment where we place our attention defines our experiences and our experiences make up our consciousness. And that is, that is, you know, um, that is a part scientifically of how we understand consciousness. It really is a, um, it's a product of our experiences. So it, it is about choice making. So the choices we make where we put our attention and what we do actually make our mind. Um, and so it is living intentionally in every moment. And that intentionality has to be now directed toward earth in, in, in its entirety. Uh, we become what we choose. We become what we attend to. We become what we focus on. And so where I am challenged with some of that, those writings, as true as they might be in the material sense, is that if we continue to focus on that, or at least that only, do we become that in our own consciousness um, and all that brings, which might be despair, it might be cynicism, it might be everything else. So where the noetics has given me, I guess, the source of hope and perhaps the radical hope or the active hope, or maybe, you know, and I'm more than happy to be um, judged as saying it's wishful thinking, but I would like to think, think that these new understandings of consciousness might just 
indicate that perhaps there is a unfolding that we cannot yet be certain of. And so these actions, which mean very little in the material realm, maybe they are having some impact in the realm of consciousness. And I would like to think they are. Um, every beach cleanup, which seems to make very little difference, just bringing people together, attending to earth, uh, caring, nurturing, tending. I think this word tending is super important as a human. I mean, there's tending and that leads into attending. It leads into intending. Um, there's something about that, um, just tending the earth that might be taking these small little cumulative actions that might be somehow making a difference. I love that. A slightly different angle on it is if we do something like try to collect plastics, a specific action, as opposed to trying to stop the whole fundamental structure that allows us to even make it. If we do it from a place less of anger and desperation, which are both totally understandable, but from a deep place of, as you would say, tending, that that makes a difference. Somehow that puts energy out into the air that that makes a difference. If it's done from that perspective, rather than just a technological uh, concrete fix. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, there was something that flashed up on social media, some initiative called 8 Billion Trees or something. You know, it was all you know, social media style. So it was sort of bam, bam, bam. And, you know, everyone's got a hard hat and all bright green shirts and, and bulldozers and teams and all going out and planting 8 billion trees. And again, it, it, it's this holding the contradiction because um, hopefully everyone doing that is doing it in the spirit of tending and it, it and it's potentially millions of trees who could say that's not the right thing to do well no it is it's it, it is um it's of course the right thing to do but there is something in that mass produced kind of um militarization of conservation which we tend to see that that perhaps loses something in the process um you know given where we are the sense of urgency yes let's plant as many trees as possible but let's never forget in the process of doing that, um, as you've just articulated, where that's coming from and what emotional state that's in. So I really hope that all these promising initiatives, which are responding to a sense of, um, of emergency, uh, equally honour the process and not just the outcome. And then we know so little. Planting trees sounds wonderful, but what kind of trees? Uh, trees themselves grew up naturally in an entire interacting community. Does just sticking plant trees into the ground make a difference? And should we first think through how we might actually help an entire community develop? That's much deeper than that. Again, it's like a technological fix. Okay, need more trees, stick trees in ground. Versus really thinking through what is a forest? Um, where did I read recently yes. someone talking about a tree growing by itself, how lonely it is? Um, yeah. so there are all these other levels to be understood and, and if we don't come from a more for lack of a better word uh, spiritual noetic or awakening human consciousness point of view then it's easy to just think we're doing something good now I'm no expert on this I'm just bringing up these questions um, you're saying of course it's a good thing to plant trees well maybe maybe we haven't thought it through enough yes in principle but then we need to do yeah. a whole lot of thinking about it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, I would like to, th I would at least hope to think that whoever you know, who are behind these initiatives are doing 
some uh, basic research there, but your point, I'm glad you mentioned that and challenged it because it raises up another whole other aspect which I've had increasing experience with lately, and that is the, the act of communing with nature in a very uh, real and embodied and intuitive noetic sense. Um, and, you know, as you would be aware, I have some colleagues who have um, established themselves in fields of animal communication or interspecies communication and also recently looking at the application of the family constellations or the constellations, which I won't elaborate on now, but looking at that systemic process of healing relationships in family, how can we heal relationships in land? We assume we know the answers and we assume we even know what Earth wants at this point in time and conservation has become you know, very managerial yeah. um, in, in many of its senses. And, you know, whereas other um, understandings like biomimicry, which sees ourselves much more of a part of nature and, and that, but even these processes of communing, actually, let's, let's ask the land, what does it want? And some of my friends have gone through these constellations, you know, dealing with their own grief uh, regarding Earth and where it's going. You know, have had some very profound realizations that don't sit comfortably with the current discourse. You know, it's it's like, how you deal with your stuff? Me as Earth is okay, and that's very confronting because it turns everything on its head. And I guess when we take a longer view of time, this little epoch of humanity is perhaps um, inconsequential. But, I mean, that was for that particular person. It doesn't necessarily uh, apply to you know, one. That's that's one way of knowing. And I think the thing about noetics and all these ideas is that it's looking at multiple ways of knowing and integrating multiple ways of knowing. So if we look at uh, potentially using animal communication or interspecies communication and constellations and multiple methodologies for these big questions, we might get far more effective and profound responses to, you know, to the question of, well, what do we plant here? What do we do on this piece of land? And it's not to negate or displace a, a scientific understanding of ecology and what needs to happen. Uh, that is one way of knowing. But what I really am keen to see, even in these times of urgencies, is us actually finding ourselves sitting in a whole different way of knowing and approaching these sort of big, um, big questions. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I mean by going to a deeper level um, or having a different kind of view. Would you mind sharing some of the experiences you refer to or experiences that have have made you into who you are and following the path you're following? My background, well, originally it was actually in business and, and marketing and I and consumer behavior, but I was fascinated there with the psychology of humans and how they responded to you know, to marketing. But I was very disillusioned with that path from my early 20s and proceeded to shift into the environmental sciences and then did a, um, a very intensive um, degree in environmental sciences, ecosystem assessment, uh, fisheries, um, science, international policy. And um, that was fantastic. Uh, I learned an awful lot. But I realized then that all of a sudden my marketing training, which I thought had been a waste of time, I realized that the conservation community was lacking the ability to effectively communicate. And I would, you know, we'd have these whole lectures and I always would sometimes feel the end, well, who knows about this? And, and what's the so what factor for, for people? And so that was challenging me a little bit, um, but I was still going to go deeper into uh, this, this form of science. I was going to do a PhD in fishery science, but around that time I had a couple of very powerful personal experiences and 
one involving a, a friend that passed away uh, suddenly in a hiking accident. And um, in that absolute anguish, I took my bike and went to the forest and sat there and didn't really know what to do, but said some form of prayer. And in the moments after that, three dragonflies landed on me and I just was floored and I have remained so to this day, even though I tried to deny the experience for a while. But they stayed on me. I was able to lean in and take a photo. And this is back in 2006 before selfies were a thing. But I took photos and that was able to validate my experience for myself later on. And um, and they stayed on for, who knows, quite a long time, several minutes. And then one by one they left and I wasn't near water or anything. And uh, irrespective of the interpretation at that point, um, it just was such a huge experience. It shaped me into reawakening some of my earlier experiences and perhaps childhood ideas around earth mysteries and, and things that I didn't understand. And it, it was just cathartic. It was, um, it was a life-changing moment. And um, that sort of opened up a little door which eventually got bigger and bigger and there was a whole twisting and turning of events after that um, and other experiences. I mean, I was involved in restoration ecology in South Africa and um, co-founded an organisation um, doing that and being around a campfire in the evening with conservation managers, scientists, farmers, all sorts of people I would interact with because it's a very social role of, of, of stakeholder outreach. And they would confide, you know, um, well, I don't usually tell people this, but I had this experience once. And, and I was starting to hear what I eventually called meaningful nature experiences and realising what an impact it was having on people's life story and orientation toward the environment. And some of the people who were doing the most positive actions towards the environment um, were sort of citing these particular experiences, which, which gave them, as you said before, this loyalty toward nature uh, first. And it, it, it doesn't always stay like that. I mean, we all ebb and flow. But I ended up pursuing PhD research on meaningful nature experiences in that four to five year process, perhaps because I was so focused on it. I also had um, a string of uh, other experiences myself and, and, and had the good fortune of speaking with um, many, many people who'd had these experiences to hear uh, so many experiences to realize that, um, well, um, Many people have these experiences. They don't always talk about them. They deny them, but they have a, but they have a huge impact on how we live in the world. And, um, and that subsequently got me exploring the idea of connectedness with nature as well. That's, you know, in the end led me to where I am today. Certainly after my PhD, I was a bit done with academia for a while and I wanted to put this into practice. And so I had been leading and facilitating and teaching field study programs. And, you know, with our undergrads, we sometimes broach these topics uh, over the course of six weeks in the field. And, um, and that's eventually has, has led to wanting to explore this idea of noetic ecology. Um, I feel the time is right. I think for a long time there were conversations like this that we just wouldn't have been comfortable having. And, and now there's this kind of release. It just feels so much more acceptable to have these conversations given where the world's at, but particularly because now we know there is quite a lot of scientific research, even though, sadly, it's not made very public um, and it still tends to reap the wrath of sceptics. 
but it is there and it's um, and it's compelling to suggest that these kind of experiences these kind of interactions with nature are important i mean that's that's been clear for a long time but might have might actually be real um and that's and that's really been the motivation i mean during my phd uh, one of the sort of mantras that i would share is that you know whether or not the experience is real is irrelevant uh, but what's important to understand is that the interpretation exists and therefore that has a causal effect on people's behavior and that allowed me to get through a very you know a fairly conservative natural sciences degree in department by saying well whether you like the experience or not it, it it's being had i mean a lot of people were reporting they had a sense of communication with nature far more than i would have expected i was able to say well you know whether we like it or not it's being experienced so what's the impact you know let's not focus on whether it's real or not what's the impact what's the damage is what i've never been able to understand with people being reluctant to take climate change action you know we can take all these actions it doesn't do any harm you know it only harms the the modus operandi of the you know of the system but for humanity it can only do us good but what's shifting for me now and one of my colleagues is now um following up on this um she's finding that you know that that some of these ideas of communicating with nature are perhaps actually real you know and and we don't yet understand what's going on fully we can have some you know have, have guesses at it or hypotheses i should say um but that's that's quite liberating and i think that's what gives me hope at this time wonderful matt wonderful putting it mildly what would it actually mean so i just did a little film on earth fire and it started out with what if the earth is lonely for us and that comes from the idea that maybe this is real and what does it mean if it's real so sort of, sort of like taking the next step i fully understand and appreciate and and think what you're talking about is completely valid as a way to approach um human change so what if it's real or not real you see the impact and i think we're ready to go to the next step to say well maybe it is real and have that begin to enter human consciousness and that would be a fundamental incredible shift for all of us i just wanted to add the idea that a life has been a continuum okay well it's got sentience it's got volition uh, i'm talking animals here for example but even trees you know and mm. just the research that's coming out on trees now we we're understanding so much more about the way that they sense learn in the world um experience emotion that's probably more with animals than we know with trees but even trees seem to have some sort of reaction to what goes on um this is you know this is really changing everything and you know i've just heard a couple of anecdotal stories regarding fires recently wildfires um and i would have never have entertained this thought not so long ago but even the sense that some of these wildfires have a sentience to them or or some sort of volition to them and you know I, at this stage i don't rule anything out um i think it's again being humble and comfortable in the not knowing yeah some of these things seem outrageous and absurd and then we want to disregard everything about what the person said or about that way of thinking but i think it is really important just not to close our minds because we we just know nothing um, no the more we know the less we know it seems yeah. um in case people are interested would you be willing to share the name of the woman who said is continuing this work so people could uh, look her up um it's my uh, colleague uh, dr saskia fundist 
And she actually just gave a very nice podcast recently on Dr. Bernie Bateman's Connecting with Coincidence podcast. Yeah, she's doing a postdoc on intuitive farming and intuitive agriculture and has been looking at various case studies of, of how uh, farmers use intuition in the course of their work. And, and that's been an evolving process for her and looking at various uh, styles, you know, whether it's biodynamic farming or, or, other, um, or other forms of agroecology. But, but looking again at more of these embodied intuitive processes that, that are less heady and more uh, heartfelt. I mean, she was obviously very interested to work with interspecies communicators and constellators to also see what's happening in that field and to um, visit various sites that are employing these techniques. So she's had the um, benefit and privilege of being able to visit uh, many different um, eco-villages, farms, and, uh, and interview many um, practitioners and land managers about what works for them. That's definitely informing her research and, of course, her own worldview now and, and, um, and her own practices. So it's always wonderful exchanging with her. If you look for eco-fluency on social media, you'll be able to find some of her work. Um, I understand she also published a paper recently as well on some of this. As we end the conversation, what would you like to say? The golden thread that has weaved so much of my experiences and so much of my orientation toward this work is connection connectedness and it would be another podcast now to explain what is understood by that because it's used so often but we often really don't know what it means but I've really been exploring that term through so many angles and so many ways uh, academically and experientially and it's become the lens for how I see the world and the choices I make is this connective or is this disconnected and and, and obviously that's mainly referring to nature, but it's also referring to social interactions as well. So my message from here on would just be to say, you know, what is connecting, what is meaningful, and what is somehow speaking to a, a new story that, that allows us to move forward with, with, with hope, but also to keep us grounded in this sense of, deep experience and belonging with earth and just to remain open-minded and to embrace all experience as 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 part of the gift of being alive on earth at this point in time this is dr susan eirich for earthfire radio a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Arberg. Thank you for listening. <laughs>